Part One, Chapter Five. If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. After that, he never mentioned England again to her, but he most desperately wanted to talk about it to someone. There was no one in Penny Green from whom he could expect helpful suggestions. But it was not helpful suggestions he wanted. He wanted merely to talk about it to a sympathetic listener. And not only about the book, about all sorts of things that interested him. And indirectly they all helped the book. To talk with one who responded sympathetically was in some curious way a source of enormous inspiration to him. Not always precisely inspiration, comfort. All sorts of warm feelings stirred pleasurably within him when he could, in some sympathetic company, open out his mind. He was not actively aware of it, but what, in those years, he came to crave for as a starved child craves for food was sympathy of mind. He found it in Penny Green, with what Mabel called the most extraordinary people. What you can find in that Mr. Fargus and that young Perch and his everlasting mother, she used to say. I simply cannot imagine. He found a great deal. Mr. Fargus, who lived next door down the green, and outside whose gate the bicycle had made its celebrated shortage record, was a gray little man with gray whiskers and always in a gray suit. He had a large and very red wife, and six thin, rather yellowish daughters. Once a day at four in the summer, and two in the winter, the complete regiment of Farguses moved out in an immense mass and proceeded in a dense crowd for a walk. The female Farguses, having very long legs, walked very fast, and the solitary male Fargus, having very short legs, walked very slowly, and was usually therefore trotting to keep up with the pack. He had, moreover, not only to keep pace but also to keep place. He was forever getting squeezed out from between two tall Farguses and trotting agitatedly around the heels of the battalion to recover a position in it. He always reminded Sabre of an old gray Scottish terrier toddling along behind and around the flanks of a company of gaunt, striding mastiffs. He returned from those walks panting slightly and a little perspiring, and at the door gave the appearance of being dismissed and trotted away like a little gray old Scottish terrier toddling off to the stables. The Lady Farguses called this daily walk exercise, and it certainly was exercise for Mr. Fargus. The eldest Miss Fargus was a grim thirty-nine, and the youngest Miss Fargus a determined twenty-eight. They called their father Papa, and used the name a good deal. When Sabre occasionally had tea with the Farguses on a Sunday afternoon, Mr. Fargus always appeared to be sitting at the end of an immense line of female Farguses. Mrs. Fargus would pour out a cup and hand it to the Miss Fargus at her end of the line with the loud word, Papa, and would whiz down the chain from daughter to daughter to the clamorous direction, each to each. Papa, 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 Papa. The cup would reach Mr. Fargus at the speed of a thunderbolt. And Mr. Fargus, waiting for it with agitated hands as a nervous fielder awaits a rushing cricket ball, would stop it convulsively and usually drop and catch at it and miss the spoon, whereupon the entire chain of Farguses would give together a very loud tchuk and immediately shoot at their parent a plate of buns with buns, 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 buns all the way down the line. Similarly, when Mr. Fargus's gray little face would sometimes appear above the dividing wall to saber in the garden there, would come a loud cry of, Papa, the plums! 
and from several quarters of the garden this would he echoed papa the plums papa the plums and the gray little head in the middle of a sentence would disappear with great swiftness the farguses kept but one servant a diminutive and startled child with one hand permanently up her back in search of an apron shoulder string and permanently occupied in frantically pursuing loud cracks like pistol shots of kate 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 each miss fargus did something in the house one did the lamps another did the silver another did the fowls and whatever it was they did they were always doing it each miss fargus in addition did her own room and unitedly they all did the garden every doing was done by the clock and at any hour of the day any one miss fargus could tell a visitor precisely what and at what point of what every other miss fargus was doing in this well-ordered scheme of things what mr fargus principally did was to keep out of the way of his wife and daughters and this duty took him all his time and ingenuity from the back windows of Sabre's house, the gray little figure was frequently to be seen fleeting up and down the garden paths in wary evasion of his daughters doing the garden. And there was every reason to suppose that within the house, the gray figure similarly fleeted up and down the stairs and passages. "'Where's Papa?' was a constant cry from mouth to mouth of the female Farguses. And fatigue parties were constantly being detached from their duties to skirmish in pursuit of him. In his leisure from these flights, Mr. Fargus was intensely absorbed in chess, in the game of patience, and in the solution of acrostics. Sabre was also fond of chess and attracted to acrostics, and regular evenings of every week were spent by the two unriddling the problems set in the chess and acrostic columns of journals taken in for that purpose. They would sit for hours, solemnly staring at one another puffing at their pipes, in quest of a hidden word beginning with one letter and ending with another, or in search of the two master moves that alone would produce mate. Likewise for hours, the two in games of chess and in competitive patience, one against the other, to see who would come out first. And to all these mental exercises, chess, acrostics, and patience, an added interest was given by Mr. Fargus's presentation of them as illustrative of his theory of life. Mr. Fargus's theory of life was that everybody who was placed in life to fulfill a divine purpose and invested with the power to fulfill it. No, no, it's not fatalism, Mr. Fargus used to say, not predestination. It's just exactly like a chess problem or an acrostic. The creator sets it. He knows the solution, the answer. You've got to work it out. It's all keyed for you, just as the final move in chess or the final discovery in an acrostic is keyed up to right from the start. And on this argument, Mr. Fargus introduced Sabre to the great entertainment in working back when a game of patience failed to come out after a defeat in chess. You worked back to the immense satisfaction of finding the precise point at which you went wrong. Up to that point, you had followed the keyed path. Precisely there you missed it. Tremendous, eh? Mr. Fargus used to say. Terrific. If you hadn't done that, you'd have got it. That one move, all that way back, was calamity. Calamity. What a word. And they would stare bemused eyes upon one another. You put that into life, Mr. Fargus used to say. Imagine if every life at death was worked back, and where it went wrong, where it made its calamity, 
and the date put on a tombstone, eh? What a record! Who dare walk through a churchyard? Sabre's objection was, Of course no one would ever know. Suppose your idea is correct. Who's to say what a man's purpose in life was, let alone whether he'd fulfilled it? How can you work towards a purpose if you don't know what it is? Then little old Mr. Fargus would grow intense. Why, Sabre, that's just where you are with an acrostic or in chess. How can you work out the solution when you don't know what the solution is? Yes, but you know there's a solution. Mr. Fargus's eyes would shine. Well, there you are, and you know that in life there is a purpose. And what attracted and interested Sabre was that the little man, living here his hunted life among the terrific doings of seven female Farguses, firmly believed he was working out and working towards his designed purpose. He had worked back his every event in life, he said, and it had brought him so inevitably to Penny Green and to skipping about among the seven that he was assured it was the keyed path to his purpose. He amazed Sabre by telling him, without a trace of self-consciousness and equally without a trace of religious mania, that he was waiting, daily, for God to call upon him to fulfill the purpose for which he was placed there. He expected it as one expects a letter by post. When he talked about it to Sabre, he positively trembled and shone with eagerness as a child trembling and shining with excitement before an unopened parcel. One day Sabre protested. But look here, Fargus, look here. How are you going to know when it comes? It might be anything. You don't know what it is, and, well, you won't know, will you? The little man said, I believe I shall, Sabre. I've worked back for years, as far as ever my memory will carry, and everything has been so exactly keyed that I'm convinced I'm on the way to my purpose. I believe you can feel it if you've waited for it like that. I believe you're asked ready. And I want to say whatever it is, aye, ready. Mysterious and awful suggestion, Sabre thought, to believe yourself at any moment to be touched as by a finger and ask, ready? Aye, ready. Mysterious and awful intimacy with God. And then there were the Perches. Young Perch and that everlasting old mother of his, as Mabel called them. Sabre always spoke of them as young Rod, Pole, or Perch, and old Mrs. Rod, Pole, or Perch. This was out of what Mabel called his childish and incomprehensible habit of giving nicknames, high jinks and low jinks, the outstanding and never forgiven example of it. Whatever the joke of it, she demanded. When one day she found Sabre speaking of Major Millet, another neighbor and great friend of hers as Old Hopscotch Millet. Whatever's the joke of it? He doesn't play hopscotch. No, but he bounds about, Sabre explained. You know the way he bounds about, Mabel. He's about ninety. I'm sure he isn't, nor fifty. Well, anyway, he's past his first youth, and he's always bounding about to show how agile he is. He's always calling out, Righty-o, and jumping to do a thing when there's no need to jump. Hopscotch. What can you call him but Hopscotch? But why call him anything, Mabel said. His name is Millet. Her annoyance caused her voice to squeak. Why call him anything? Sabre laughed. Well, you know how ridiculous a thing like that comes into your head and you can't get rid of it. You know the way. Mabel declared she was sure she did not know the way. They don't come into my head. Look at the perches. Not that I care what name you call them. Rod, Polar, Perch. What's the sense of it? What does it mean?
Sabre said it didn't mean anything. You just get someone called Perch, and then you can't help thinking about that absurd thing, rod, pole, or perch. It just comes. I call it childish and rude, Mabel said. Mrs. Perch was a fragile little body whose life should have been and could have been divided between her bed and a bath chair. She was, however, as she said, always on her legs. And she was always on her legs and always doing what she had not the strength to do, because, as she said, she had always done it. She conducted her existence in the narrow space between the adamant wall of the things she had always done, always eaten, and always worn, and the adamant wall of the things that she had never done, never eaten, and never worn. There was not much room between the two. She was intensely weak-sighted, but she could never find her glasses, and she kept locked everything that would lock, but she never could find her keys. She held off all acquaintances by the rigid handle of that before their names but she was very fond of that Mr. Sabre, and Sabre returned a great affection for her. With his trick of seeing things with his mental vision, he always saw how old Mrs. Perch, toddling and moving lips and fumbling fingers between the iron walls of her prejudices, and this was a pathetic picture to him, for ease or pleasure were not discernible between the walls. Nevertheless, Mrs. Perch found pleasures therein, and the way in which her face lit up to Sabre, an indescribable poignancy to the pathos of the picture. She never could pass a baby without stopping to adore it. An astounding tide of rejuvenation would then flood up from the mysterious manes, welling up upon her silvered cheeks and through her dim eyes, stilling the movement of her lips and the fumbling motions of her fingers. Also amazing tides of glory when she was watching for her son and saw him. Young Perch was a tall and slight young man, with a happy laugh, and an air which suggested to Sabre, after puzzlement, that his spirit was only alighted in his body as a bird alights and swings upon a twig, not engrossed in his body. He did not look very strong. His mother said he had a weak heart. He said he had a particularly strong heart, and used to protest. Oh, mother, I do wish you wouldn't talk that bosh about me. To which Mrs. Perch would say, it's no good saying you haven't got a weak heart, because you have a weak heart. You've always had a weak heart. Surely I ought to know. Young Perch would reply, You ought to know, but you don't know. You get an idea in your head, and nothing will ever get it out. Some day you'll probably get the idea that I've got two hearts. And if Sir Frederick Trevis swore before the Lord Chief Justice that I had only one heart, you just say, The man's a perfect fool. You're awful, you know. You know, mother. He used to reprove his mother like that. Mrs. Perch would give him a grim little laugh, relishing her strength, and then young Perch would give an involuntary little laugh, accepting his weakness. That was how they lived. Young Perch always carried about in one pocket a private pair of spectacles for his mother, and in another a private set of keys for her most used receptacles. When the search for her spectacles had exhausted even her own energy, young Perch would say, "'Well, you better use these, mother.' It was of no use to offer them until she was weakening in the search, and she would take them grudgingly with, They don't suit me. Similarly with the keys, accepted only after prolonged and maddening search. Well, you better try these, mother. They injure the lock. Sabre often witnessed and took part in these devastating searches. Young Perch would always say, Now just sit down, mother, instead of rushing about, and try to think quite calmly when you last used them. Mrs. Perch intensely fatigued, intensely worried. 
How very silly you are, Freddy. I don't know when I last used them. If I knew when I last used them, I would know where they are now. Well, you'd better use these now, Mother. They don't suit me. They ruin my eyes. Yet Mrs. Rod, Pole, or Perch, who confided much in Sabre, and who had no confidences of any kind apart from her son, would often say to Sabre, Freddy always finds my keys for me, you know. He finds everything for me, Mr. Sabre. The tide and glory would flood amazingly upon her face, transfiguring it, and Sabre would feel an immensely poignant clutch at the heart. The Perch's house was called Puncher's, Puncher's Farm, a few hundred yards along the lane leading to the great high road, and it was the largest and by far the most untidy house in Penny Green. Successive Punchers of old time, when it had been the most considerable farm in all the country between Chovensbury and Tidborough, had added to it, in stubborn defiance of all laws of comfort and principles of domestic architecture, and now, shorn alike of its punchers and of its pastures, the homestead that might easily have housed twenty was mysteriously filled to overflowing by two. Mrs. Perch was fond of saying she had lived in nineteen houses in her time and Sabre had the belief that the previous eighteen had all been separately furnished, and the entire accumulation, together with every newspaper taken in during their occupation, brought to Punchers. Half the rooms of Punchers were so filled with furniture that no more furniture, and scarcely a living person, could be got in, and half the rooms were so filled with boxes, packages, bundles, trunks and crates, and stacks of newspaper that no furniture at all could be got in. Every room was known to Mrs. Perch and to young Perch by the name of some article it contained, and Mrs. Perch was forever going to sort the room with your Uncle Henry's couch in it, or the room with the big blue box with the funny top in it, or some other room similarly described. Mrs. Perch was always going to, but as the task was always contingent upon either when I have got a servant into the house, or when I have turned the servant out of the house, these two states representing Mrs. Perch's occupation with the servant problem, the couch of Uncle Henry, the big blue box with the funny top, and all the other denizens of the choked rooms remained, like threatened men, precariously but securely, but not unvisited. Sabre spent a week in the house, terminating a summer holiday a little earlier than Mabel, and he had formed the opinion that the mother and son never went to bed at night, and never got up in the morning. In remote hours, and in remote quarters of the house, mysterious sounds disturbed his sleep. Eerily peering over the banisters, he discerned the pair moving like lost souls about the passages. Mrs. Perch with skirts of a red dressing gown in one hand and a candle in the other, young Perch disconsolately in her wake, yawning with another candle. Young Perch called this prowling about the infernal house all night and one office of the prowl appeared to Sabre to be the attendance of pans of milk warming in a row on oil stoves, and suggesting, with the glimmer of the stoves and the steam of the pans, mysterious oblations to midnight gods. Mrs. Perch believed her son could do anything, and in the matter of his capabilities, had a strange conviction that he only had to write and ask anybody from Mr. Asquith downwards for employment in the highest offices in order to obtain it. Young Perch, who used to protest, "'Well, but I've got my work, mother,' was in fact a horticulturist, a very fair reputation. 
He specialized in sweet peas and roses, and Sabre, in the early days of his intimacy with the Rod Polar Perch household, was surprised at the livelihood that could apparently be made by the disposal of seeds, bloomings, and cuttings. "'Fred's getting quite famous with his sweet peas,' Sabre once said to Mrs. Perch. "'I've been reading an illustrated interview with him in the country house.' Tides of glory into Mrs. Perch's face. "'Ah, if only he hadn't worn that dreadful floppy hat of his, Mr. Sabre. "'It couldn't have happened at a more unfortunate day. "'I fully intended to see how he looked before the photographs were taken, "'and of course it so happened I was turning the servant out of the house "'and couldn't attend to it. "'That dreadful floppy hat doesn't suit him. "'It never did suit him. "'It's no good my saying anything to him.' "'This was an opinion that old Mrs. Perch was constantly reiterating.' Young Perch was equally given to declaring, I can't do anything with my mother, you know. And yet it was Sabre's observation that each life was entirely guided and administered by the other. Young Perch once told Sabre that he had never slept a night away from his mother since he was seventeen. And he was never absent from her a half a day, but she wasn't at the window watching for his return. Sabre was extraordinarily attracted by the devotion between the pair. Their interests, their habits, their thoughts were as widely sundered as their years. Yet each was wholly and completely bound up in the other. When Sabre sat and talked with young Perch of an evening, old Mrs. Perch would sit with him, next her son, in an armchair asleep. At intervals she would start awake and say querulously, "'Now I suppose I must be driven off to bed.' Young Perch, not pausing in what he might be saying, would stretch a hand and lay it on his mother's. Mrs. Perch, as though Freddy's hand touched away enormous weariness and care, would sigh restfully and sleep again. It gave Sabre extraordinary sensations. If he had been asked to name his particular friends, these were the friends he would have named. He saw them constantly. Infrequently he saw another. Quite suddenly she came back into his life. Nona returned to his life. End of chapter 5 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah voiceover-solutions.com